Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter Seven. Ten minutes passed. It flashed in my eyes. Slowly, my breathing became less frantic, my, my shivering less like a seizure. A half hour. My arms and back ached from holding on, but I needn't have so hard. There weren't any stresses or forces pulling me away now. There was no gravity. The ship was rock-steady in the middle of a spherical, pitch-black space. The strut vibrated under my arms and legs from the workings of the engine and power plant, but now that the universe was in vac, these machines were completely silent. That was good. I relaxed my hold a bit. Oh, hey! <laughs> the infrared filters were still active on my retinals. I muttered the deactivation phrase, and they returned to the visible light setting. Yeah, that was better. Things weren't so red and orange anymore. <laughs> Forty minutes. Clearly, we were jumping away from the system. There were warships posted at the rim, so there was no getting out that way. An hour. We had to be going much further out. Probably mid-space somewhere, between stars, where the ship's superluminal graviton wake wouldn't be detected upon re-entry to the real universe, even with highly calibrated sensors looking in all directions, which by now, they most certainly were. We could be in jump space for many more hours. Or for days. Weeks? Oh... Clinging to a landing strut the whole time wasn't going to work. When it seemed safe, Mavis ordered ship's atmo restored, and within minutes we were able to remove our pressure suits. Sensors were back online about an hour after this, including actives, but John and Stina still had a ton of recalibrating to do. All their equipment was way out of true. Something had hammered us across the entire EM spectrum, far beyond what the station had been doing. The fact that we were no longer showing radio band interference revealed that Mylag Vernier had stopped hitting us with that odd beam. It didn't represent much improvement in the situation, but any good news was noteworthy. 
We decided to let the sensor specialists have the common room to themselves so they could work without distraction, and convene the post-mortem amidships, with Mavis, Chris, Dieter, and myself sitting on our bunks. So when Jaybird jumped in front of us the second time, Chris was clarifying while taking notes for his own report, which he'd need to turn into Meerschaum eventually, just as we all would. It was already locked on to us? Within half a second, yeah. It must have been getting telemetry piped from the station because it arrived facing us, matching speed and movement in all three axes, though somewhat below our plane. We were less than a hundred kilometers apart, making us an easy target. Then why are we alive? Mavis asked, her bright mechanical eyes following everything I said and did. Three reasons, I supplied, counting them off. One, they were below us, like I said, possibly a telemetry error. It would have taken their targeting systems just that much longer to acquire us. They could detect us at that range since they knew where to look, and the efficacy of our stealth system relies on distance as well as technology. Two, Mavis reacted faster than they could have anticipated, turning us from a standing target, relatively speaking, into a moving one. And three... After their first appearance, I set up an automatic attack sequence, keyed to run on a certain set of criteria. This specifically included a graviton exit cone within a close radius and a weapons lock upon Shady Lady. The same events as the first time. Why'd they pull the same move twice in a row? The ML queried. I don't know. It was a mistake, for sure, but they probably thought we wouldn't be expecting it again so soon. In point of fact, I wasn't, but I'm compulsive about some things. What did they hit us with? Mavis inquired, her brows knit. This required a visual, so I moved to the center of the companionway between them all and knelt down. Bringing up a hasty animation assembled from the data returns we'd gotten in the microseconds before sensors were overwhelmed, a soft glow filled the narrow companionway painting strange images on everyone's faces. The resolution of my wrist comp wasn't great, but it sufficed for this. I don't think they hit us at all, I explained. I think we hit us. With subdued hand gestures, I advanced the scene slowly. It showed a generic bat shape, just a stock model from the library, which represented Shady Lady. I placed a blinking dot to its port, then zoomed in close to one side of the display field so as to draw a bright yellow line coming in at an angle. From what I can figure, they fired a spiraling particle lance, far deadlier than the new pack gun I was expecting. Uh, think of it like a focused beam made of plasma. It struck missile G just after it was ejected, but a twentieth of a second prior to the missile's engine ignition. We were pulling a tight arc at that moment. Mavis, how many G's was it? At least 24, the captain supplied. Wow. Okay, at that speed, and with that kind of an arc, we would have been in a position like this. I flicked my finger a bit to turn the bat over by a hair and facing more to the right. The beam hits the missile, which is still just outside the ship, but no longer near its launch tube, because we're turning away. It's closer to port aft down here. We don't have any armor on this tub to speak of, Dieter stated, then pointed to the spot where we were hit. Why weren't we ripped open when the missile went off? Because it didn't, 
Civilian-class missiles just about can't detonate by anything other than intentional means. It's a safety feature. Moving the animation forward, I drew the beam down to touch the dot, which in turn bounced back into the bat. So the beam hits the missile, I continued, instantly converting it into a ball of debris and hot gases, which in turn slams directly back into Shady Lady. We collided with the wreck of our own missile, but we should be happy we did. It deflected the plasma strike. Had the beam actually hit us, it would have sheared off the back end of the ship. That was, in fact, a Class Three lance. Spectral analysis pegs it as military grade. I've never seen one before, but it's listed in the library. I thought we hit them first, Mavis said, confused. No, we fired first, but missiles move slower than laser or plasma beams. Actually, our forward laser may have hit them spot on without any lateral tracking. If so, that would indeed be first blood to us. But I don't want to pester John or Stina to run a log search right now. No, Chris agreed. We'll figure it out later. Could either of your weapon systems account for the energy burst that followed? Not a chance, I replied with a firm shake of my head and getting to my feet. It was something aboard Jaybird. Maybe that experimental power system going critical? A weird effect of the free jump tech? I shrugged. That was it for me, so I sat down and relaxed. It was easy to do because I'd been presenting the good news. Dieter was next, and his was all bad. I've been running some numbers, he started off, then squirted out a localized data pack so we could follow along with our own communication and display tools as he spoke. In my eye view, I saw a request for a conference call and opened it up. Icons for all of us in the meeting appeared there, superimposed over the real us. The engineer's information packet blinked in front of his avatar. I did a head gesture to open it up, and a table of data dropped down. The others did similar movements, Chris with his dual watches, one on either hand, and Dieter with a multi-piece thing attached to his flight suit in various places, which he utilized with a combination of finger moves, button taps, and sub-vocalizations. Mavis was interacting with the rest of us just fine, but didn't apparently need to do anything but think about it. That power line was cut clean through, as far as I can tell, the man with the permanent hangover explained. I've been able to access all affected systems and reroute through the two remaining trunks. We're back up to full, but this revealed a serious problem. One of the entries flashed red under his command then centered itself in the image and grew in size. It was under the subheading, Star Jump Pre-Cycle. What is that? Mavis asked, suddenly concerned. A simulated star jump? Why is the power-up sequence failing? The man touched the air over his chest, wiggling his fingers and drawing a circle around several subsystems on the list. Everything in engineering is integrated in order to save on space and allow for adequate masking during stealth runs. There's no direct access to the star jump engine unless I pull out all controls for the main drive, disconnecting maneuvering thrusters, and remove a couple of backup systems for life support. How much time? The captain queried. I can't even guess. Weeks? What if you had help? I offered. I know a bit about engines. You don't have the clearance, 
Chris put in, but then turned to Mavis. You could order him to help, which would be a legal exception in the security contract, but they might give you flack over it later. I don't mind that under the circumstances, but is there even room for two of you back there? Dieter shook his head, looking serious. No, it's such close quarters we'd just be in each other's way. I'll need permission to remove certain classified parts and systems outside the confines of engineering, though. Even on my own, I won't be able to work around that stuff once I start disconnecting it. You'll have it, she assured him. We'll log and tag everything and put it under sheets. If Mia Sham wants to complain later, we can at least say we did what we could to secure their patents. Ridiculous crap, I know, but none of us want legal troubles back home on top of everything else. This was true enough, and we all nodded grimly, the shared specter of lawyers and lawsuits hovering like vultures. So, Chris concluded, after Dieter had closed his conference link and we were all looking at each other, we have no idea if Team knows where we are? Calm is almost recalibrated, Stina called from the common room, having apparently been following our conversation to some extent. It's in the last cycle of the reset. After that, John injected, cut her off more like, we'll be able to do near real-time decrypts. We've had the cipher system running code family analyses on the older stuff all this time. Weeks of samples to pull from. I think we have a fast crack in place now. How long until it's up? Chris asked them. Fifty-two minutes. About an hour, maybe, came their simultaneous replies. They glared at each other. With this, everyone was current, so we broke up the meeting. I grabbed a fake steak and powdered coffee before retiring to gunnery. Without sensors in place yet, I was just a blind archer back there, which wasn't a common element in battlefield dominance. Real-time feeds were coming in, but they still looked a mess. They needed calibrations and library linkages for which I neither had direct access to perform, nor the required expertise. Opticals looked okay, but on their own, they weren't adequate for attacking at distance. Jaybird, or pieces thereof, wasn't in view anyway, no matter where I looked. After this, I wasted time trying to spot the fighters that had been scrambled from the testing zone, using long-range telescopics, light amp filters, and probable course projections, all without luck. Others were more fortunate in their endeavors. Yes! John crowed triumphantly after a time, sounding tinny in my speaker mics. We have communications. Have at it, folks. All channels are back up, and decryptions are down to just three seconds. Everyone chimed in with thank yous and good jobs and you guys are the bests, and then hunkered down, looking to see what the locals were saying. For my own part, I dialed into the team freaks and listened for the fighters, still annoyed about missing them with opticals. Though we'd cracked those codes early on, it required effort to put the chatter into context. I listened for a long time, running dialogue filters on all the overlaps and cross-conversations, and finally got a sense of what had been happening out there while we'd been sitting here, more or less stunned. Looks like that big flash put everybody's eyes out, I offered on the open channel. The fighters had to break off pursuit and head back to Liquidator using only system maps. They haven't even arrived yet. Seems like they've had communications up for some time, 
Chris put in. Before us, anyway. I'm getting regular back and forths all across the board, but there's a weird Doppler on some of the signals, like they're being relayed. The station is acting as a switchboard, Stina finished. It got comm repaired right away. They would have the people and expertise for a quick reset, Dieter confirmed. The monitoring drones throughout the entire star system are offline too, John put in. So we can assume they're no longer tracking us? Asked Mavis, clarifying. They can't even track each other, SS-1 replied, sounding amused at the thought. With our stealth system more or less intact, I stated, and their sensor drones all down, I'd say we're clear of any danger. That was received well by all, and it felt very good to say. I'm putting us into an elliptical solar orbit, ranging from 80 to about 120 million kilometers, the captain announced. A circular one would be best for stealth purposes, but getting there would be a reaction mass bill I don't want to pay. You might want to keep the stern in shadow, I offered, and she agreed. We've got a good while before we'll be desperate for an Atmo recharge, Dieter announced. Shady Lady is designed for long-term missions. I can have eyes on the actual star jump system in, oh, I don't know, about a week maybe. Would it be faster going at it from the outside? Mavis inquired. Sure, but I'd have to strip off a section of the hull and still gut several systems along the way. That would reduce our stealth capacity and create a movement flag out here. I'll do it that way if you want, but it seems risky. Too much so, she agreed. The long way it is. Okay, then. Get to work, everyone. We all acknowledged, then Chris immediately called me on a private channel. I want to bury the hatchet. Can we do that? He looked and sounded conciliatory, but not sheepish. He wasn't the type to let regret dominate his behavior or to wallow in mistakes, and I doubted that embarrassment was an emotion he was much familiar with either. Sure, I know I can be frustrating to work with sometimes. I'm sorry for that. Don't be, he conceded. You were right, and I was wrong. We'd be dead now if you hadn't been doing your job. Your foresight is a big feature in my incident log. That was a nice thing for him to say, and I relayed my appreciation, but it really wasn't why he'd called. I'd like to put a new project together, you and me, Mavis too if she's game. I want to figure out what caused that big flash there at the end. I want to put a considered conclusion into the report. Was it Jaybird's free jump engine failing in a spectacular fashion? I want to know. Do you think we can work on some sims together, covering the final few seconds of the fight? The question felt weird, almost forced. He didn't have to ask me. He could have just ordered it, since it was well within mission params. But maybe that would have undermined the olive branch. Or maybe I was just unwilling to let go of a good grudge. It was an intriguing idea anyway, so I agreed. With half of us more or less twiddling our thumbs at the moment, it would be an active contribution to the mission, one we wouldn't have time to pursue later on. And I was curious myself. A call to the captain piqued her interest enough that she agreed to sit in on the project when not overseeing the rest of ship repairs. 
We couldn't make use of the Tri-D for this, obviously, since John and Stina had a mountain of labor before them and needed its comprehensive display functions to manage the sensor realignments efficiently. The pop-up hollow on my wrist comp definitely wasn't up to this kind of challenge, so we just used personal displays. Retinals for me, while Chris wore some expensive-looking vid glasses. He worked from his bunk with a portable data block and control deck. I worked from Gunnery, using its dedicated simulation capabilities. I compiled scenario after scenario, which I then piped over to Christmas for his input. Together, we started building a sim. Mavis jumped in once or twice and actually clarified several important points about Shady Lady's position and movement during the fight. We worked for a solid shift and produced a rough draft that didn't reveal anything new. It contained only base data, though. Since we were crafting this thing entirely from scratch, something I'd never done before on a simulation this size, there were thousands of fine points that needed inputting by hand. It would be a slog, but at least we had a direction to go in now. In order to be as productive as possible, considering our limited workforce, Chris and Mavis agreed that, as an entire crew, we had to pace ourselves. If we had some people working while others were trying to sleep, it would only cause fatigue-related mistakes later on and escalate tensions. They declared a shift-and-a-half workday across the board. We were to labor at our individual projects side-by-side and then stop at the same time so it could be quiet for everyone. Mavis didn't seem to actually need any sleep. I noticed her once, though, up in the cockpit a few days later in what appeared to be deep meditation. Unmoving, palms up, blue thumb and index fingers meeting and forming rings. It went on for about an hour. Chris had a great head for project management. This shouldn't have been too surprising, but with his focus, I avoided all my usual rabbit holes. He managed to push me away from elements that weren't detail-related and curtail my tendency to chase interesting variables over hill and dale. Staying on task over the course of days can be a struggle when you're switching from an abstract or general analysis of the information landscape to the mind-numbing job of data entry. Adjust this field by 1.8. Put that setting into self-referral mode. Turn the other mode into its fourth option variable. It was an endeavor filled with fuzzy details and precise calculations all at the same time. And he was right in there, swinging away at the labor, keeping us both on our toes. We managed real progress after a few days, and I was frankly impressed by his diligence. I still didn't agree with a lot of his mission-relevant choices thus far, at least a few of which were responsible for the position we found ourselves in, but in those tedious hours, focused as we were on that sim, I grew to understand Mirsham's faith in the man's organizational and task leadership skills. I didn't necessarily share that faith, which said more about me than him perhaps, but I could certainly see why he'd gotten the job. Between imaging sim layers and presetting scenario subroutines, we chatted about the project, the mission, and about Meerschaum. We exchanged views on the industry as a whole and traded droll recruitment tales. In short, we killed time while letting our gestures and keyed inputs and voice commands paint a picture, bit by bit, 
of what exactly happened in the final microseconds of the fight. As the sensor specialists were able to fit it in, they ran specific searches for obscure data points for us. These, too, got plugged into our SIM patterns. As ordered, Dieter knocked off work when the rest of us did, but he couldn't give details of his progress to anyone but Mavis, managed, I assume, via private channels. He did, however, report that he was working to schedule, which sounded hopeful. At one point, he had the captain help him shift out some big pieces of machinery that I only got quick glimpses of before they were lashed down in a corner of the airlock and covered with a fitted tarp. They weren't anything I could identify at a glance, just crazy assemblages of wires and metallic parts. Although we all knew the rules, Mavis once again reiterated that this stuff was entirely off-limits. In the downtime, which we'd begun to refer to as the evening, we all sat around the common room, eating and talking, before going to sleep. Dieter turned out to possess a wealth of bad jokes and shaggy dog stories that Stina always had to have explained to her. John revealed a secret talent for music. He supplied Dieter with a 3D pattern one day, which the engineer took back to the printer in his restricted little department. A while later, he came out with a random pile of plastic and metal parts along with some extruded cables of varying thicknesses. No one could make head or tail of it except John, who immediately assembled it into a cheap little guitar. It was quite ugly since engineering only had obnoxious green and pink plastics on hand, but it was solid and could be tuned, and that's all that mattered. I was impressed anyway. After this, SS-1 spent the evenings crooning out romantic ballads and short, funny tunes of a consistent style I was unfamiliar with in a fine, raspy tenor no one had suspected of him. We all enjoyed it to no end. Even Stina clapped along, though usually offbeat. We had no booze or wreck drugs aboard, but it got to be like a party every night and I quickly gained a reputation for concocting the most foul Vosserman and powdered juice mocktails that anyone aboard had ever tasted. It was a pleasant, convivial sort of existence for a week or so. Then reality returned with a vengeance. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. 
Risk analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.